We're in Galatians 5 once again, and we've come as far as verse 14 of Galatians 5. Paul has laid the groundwork in the first four chapters of this letter concerning justification by faith and not by law-keeping. And in chapter 5, Paul turned to the question of how they should respond to the truths he has expounded upon. He issues exhortations and commands. Stand fast in the liberty. Don't be entangled in bondage again. Don't use liberty for fleshly pursuits or fleshly living, but serve one another in love. This is that for which God has saved us. We have been delivered from law-keeping for righteousness, declared righteous by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. In fact, there is no righteousness in keeping the law. There is only condemnation for failure to keep the law. If we're going to be righteous, it will have to be something that is done for us, not something that we can do. The good news is that God has made provision for us to be entirely righteous in his sight apart from anything we can do, in fact, in spite of what we have done. And the result is that we who believe are set free from the requirements of the law in order to obtain a righteous standing before God. We have been set free from the power of sin to dominate our lives. As verse 13 says, you have been called to liberty. So don't abandon your call to freedom for a relationship of rules and regulations which hold no benefit for you. Do not indulge the flesh and be brought into bondage to those things you've been delivered from and have been happy to be delivered from. Stand fast. James Montgomery Boyce said, Life by the Spirit is neither legalism nor license nor a middle way between them. It's a life of faith and love that is above all these false ways. In Galatians 4, or 5.14 then, we read, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a quote from Leviticus 19.18, the law. It says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now we talked about this some in a prior chapter. Paul gives this single commandment as a fulfillment of the law. Jesus spoke of two commandments that sum up the law. We looked at a passage in Matthew. But in Luke, the the passage in Luke, he actually asked someone and they give him the response. Luke 10, starting verse 25, it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And he answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. We see that you have to do the law, not just know the law, not just love the law, not just read the law. Or hear the law. You have to do the law. But the first commandment is the greater of the two. In Matthew, Jesus called it the first commandment. It's necessary to be obedient to the first before a person can be truly obedient to the second. A person cannot love others with God's love unless they first love God with the whole heart. 
The evidence of love for God is love for the brethren. Love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, John writes and says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So it's in this expression of love for our brothers, love for the neighbor, that the love for God is actually seen because no one can see your love for God. They can see outward piety, which may or may not be genuine, but they can't see what's in your heart. But this love for the brethren, remember Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so this is uh, God's love, the genuine agape love. So uh, we have to love one another. Paul reiterates this idea later in his ministry in the letter to the saints at Rome. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes and says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Again, that's, you know, this uh, love your neighbor as yourself, fulfillment of the law. In the book of James, he says, If you keep the royal law or the law of the king, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. That's a good thing. He said, But if you show partiality, then you stand condemned in error. So he who loves another has fulfilled the law here in Romans. And then uh, verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives us the second part of the Decalogue, the list of the Ten Commandments, and says uh, that fulfills the law. Law does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, the kind of love that God expresses, 1 Corinthians 13. Well, law fulfillment is not law keeping. Fulfillment is accomplished by walking in the Spirit. That's what we're going to see this morning. Law keeping is an attempt by the flesh to be pleasing to God by works. The keeping of the second commandment implies the keeping of the first, for no one can love another with God's love or as God loves unless they first love God. He who loves God must love his brother also. Anyone can claim to love God. The proof is in their treatment of their fellow human beings. If God so loved the world, what's my attitude toward the world? When he says God so loved the world, he's talking about the people, of course. Do I love the world of believers and unbelievers? In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writing to Timothy closer to the end of his ministry, says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love. From a pure heart, for a good, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So this is the end. This is the purpose. King James Version says the end of the commandment. This God's whole purpose in giving the commandment is love, is a copy of love. God is love, and we are to reflect His love. Now this doesn't mean that I don't hate evil. I hate the evil that brings destruction and condemnation to those who are made in God's image, just as He does. Love the sinner, you've heard, and hate the sin. I should speak out against evil and the evildoers, 
that's the loving thing to do, although it may and I'd say will be labeled hate speech if you speak the truth in love. <laughs> but our enemies are not those who are lost in sin. You know, we, we're told we're, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Our enemy is the one behind the evil who has the peoples trapped in darkness. When Luke 10, after uh, Jesus says, you know, do these and you're fine. In verse 29, it says, he, that uh, lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So if we can divide off certain people that we are easy to love, and we can say, well, these other ones aren't my neighbor, then, oh, that's a lot better, you know. <laughs> Not so much death to self. And Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you're no doubt familiar with, where, you know, this guy goes from Jerusalem down Jericho. He falls in among robbers who beat him and take everything he's got, and they leave him there by the side of the road. And a, a priest passes by, and he sees him there, and he goes over to the other side of the road. He gets in the wrong lane just to avoid the guy. And a Levite comes by, and he goes over on the other side. And, and you know, they're both busy. they got religious stuff to do in Jerusalem, right? They're going to the, no doubt, going to the temple so that they can fulfill their godly duties. And then this Samaritan comes along and he sees him and he uh, ministers to him, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn and leaves him there and tells the innkeeper, I'll pay and, you know, whatever more is expended when I return because I'm coming back this way, then I'll take care of that also. So uh, it's the English Bible or, you know, Bibles in general that label this the good parable of the good Samaritan. Actually, it doesn't say it's a parable. You know, there are a couple places in Luke where it's Jesus tells stories but and people assume that they're parables. But what it says at the beginning of this story in Luke 10 is there was a certain man in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. There, you know, there lived a certain man who but if it's a parable, that's fine. Anyway, it's labeled in most Bibles as the parable of the good Samaritan. And you got to realize that to the Jewish people, this was an oxymoron. There were, you know, good and Samaritan did not go together. And so the Samaritan is actually held up as the one, you know, this would make these people, <laughs> and it did make them really angry. He was the one that was actually fulfilling what God desired for men to do. He was a good Samaritan. We, You know, we had that saying back when I was growing up, you'd see it in movies sometimes, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. <laughs> so those contradiction in terms in the Old West, you know, and every once in a while you'd have a movie where there would be a good Indian, you know. And everybody, ooh. But then in verse 15, so we're to love one another, love our neighbors ourselves. In verse 15, he says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And somebody has labeled this cannibalistic Christianity. Biting, devouring, consuming. It's the opposite of loving one another. We don't pick one another to pieces over every minor shortcoming. We show grace and love to one another. We don't want to be like a pack of wild dogs 
or chickens biting or pecking one another to death. You know, chickens will get in those pecking wars, and they will, you know, blood is revealed. And yeah. Ron Merriman says, Love takes delight in unconditional service, but law makes inflexible demands, which if not met, bring unmerciful condemnation. So with all who walk in the spirit of legalism, the result is nitpicking, self-assertion, negative judgmental attitudes, and better-than-thou spirit. The net effect is complete destruction of a corporate testimony. Hundreds of local churches have had their testimony destroyed on this very basis. William McDonald says legalism invariably leads to quarreling, and apparently it had done so in Galatia. How strange. Here were people who wanted to be under the law. The law requires them to love their neighbors, yet the very reverse has happened. They have been backbiting and devouring one another. This behavior springs from the flesh, to which the law gives a place, and on which it acts. We see this lack of love again at the end of the chapter in verse 26, Galatians 5. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. This is what causes division, splits congregations and brings shame upon the gospel. Believers are capable of walking according to the flesh. Would that it were not so especially in regard to myself. <laughs> but this is the reality. We must choose to follow the Spirit and deny the flesh. Every moment we are in one or the other, in the Spirit or in the flesh. There's no neutral zone. Over in James chapter 3, verse 14, James addresses this and he says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Every evil thing. And sometimes we don't recognize it immediately, right? We're just... we're. We go from walking in the spirit to shifting over in the flesh because of some incident or something that occurs or a word that is said. And we have to realize it, wake up to it, <laughs> repent. Well, now, starting in verse 16 here, we're given the how-to of living the Christian life. It's very important. He's taking them through why the law won't work. Now, how do I live this Christian life? You know, it's been said that no one can live the Christian life except Jesus, and that's true. So we, he has to be living in us for us to live that life, but we'll see some, you know, the practical of how how it's done here. Stand fast in liberty. That's part of it. Don't indulge the flesh. These aren't mere commands without empowerment, but power given by the grace of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Walking in the Spirit is walking by faith. It's real power for godly living. And so we can choose, and we do choose, how we will live. We've been set free to please God, and we are free to please Him, but we still must choose the way of the flesh or the way of the Spirit. 
In verse 16, Paul writes, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There is a battle going on in every person, every person's life. Walk or live in the spirit. That's what the word walk here indicates is the path of life. You shall not fulfill the lust, or that simply means desires, the desires of the flesh. Merriman says the believer's maturation, his understanding and appreciation of the Christian way of life, his liberation from the sin nature are all dependent on his relation to God's spirit. The flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. One pleases God and the other cannot please God. The spirit brings death to the flesh, the old man, and only one of them can survive. The old fleshly man or the new man, according to Ephesians 4.24, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The new man has no need for improvement. He only needs to be lived in. The old man has no possibility of improvement. He can only be denied life. The old man will fight for survival. He doesn't want to die. We read earlier in Galatians in chapter 4 and verse 29, As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Paul was speaking of an external conflict. This is the external conflict. It mirrors the internal conflict. Merriman again says, those in accord with the flesh will antagonize those in accord with the spirit. And one of the chief means for this fleshly antagonism is legalism. Legalism gives vent to the flesh. Legalism gives the flesh a chance to look good. The Pharisees were legalists par excellence. They had high standards. Their, Their standards were considered the highest of the day. They looked good on the outside. But they crucified the Lord Jesus. It's no wonder that legalistic groups and local churches continually experience splits, infighting, factions, and divisions, or as we said, cannibalism, such as the lot of all who walk in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 7.5 says, uh, Paul's speaking of his experience in, in the coming into Macedonia. He says, indeed, when we came to Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. There's an outward conflict. There's an inner struggle. With the exter- As with the external conflict, so the internal battle. And legalism is a favorite tactic of the flesh. It is not in the little do's and don'ts of the law that displays righteousness. It is exhibiting the character of God which comes through walking in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law because the Holy Spirit is holy. The law reflects who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, His righteousness. Do you know God never has to be careful about what He does or doesn't do? He simply is, you know, being Himself. That's all He he is. That's all He does. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have to think, I better be careful, I could mess up here, you know. The Holy Spirit is God. 
and he's come to dwell within us. And if we walk in the Spirit, we won't having, be having to look at boundaries and laws and so forth. We'll just be doing what comes naturally to the Lord. God only does those things that are consistent with who he is. And so is the one who walks in the Spirit. As we walk in his Spirit, we fulfill who he is in our person. Now, the Spirit uses some prescribed things in our lives to aid and strengthen us in walking with Him. We find these in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and you'll find them you know, throughout the, the New Testament. And we go in, this would be a good study just to go into more detail on these things. That first church, Acts 2, 42, it says, as they believed and they were baptized, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And these things are very important for the church to continue steadfastly in, keep participating in, keep seeking, uh, because they are things that strengthen the church and help to walk in the Spirit. The, the Apostles' Doctrine, teaching of the New Testament, fellowship, gathering together in His Spirit, the breaking of bread, communion together, Reminding us of that body and blood that does unite us and the Holy Spirit who has come. But as well, you know, uh, taking meals together. That's an important time of fellowship together. Uh, in the uh, ancient world, we don't see it so much in our day, but uh, like at the Last Supper, they would normally have one pot. They would all sit around this table and they would have pieces of bread that would be their utensils and they would dip in that pot and when the bread itself would be a loaf that's broken so uh, they would view this as everybody partaking of the same uh, meal and so it becomes part of each one of them and this is you know the idea behind communion as well and then in prayers prayer is very vital for the survival of the church and so you know so much of the church is neglecting these things in the present day. But we find these things repeated and reinforced for us throughout his word. These are weapons in our warfare against the external and internal enemies that would destroy our faith. If we neglect these basic activities of the spirit, we'll find ourselves in a weakened state. The Lord has given us provisions for victory in the internal struggle, that is, over the flesh. Now, I'm not speaking of sinless perfection, but nonetheless, a real victory. Sin shall not have dominion over us by his grace. First, there's the opportunity to walk in the Spirit as we read about here. When you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the desires of the fallen nature, the nature that is hostile toward God. In this passage where he says, you shall not fulfill, this is one of those places where in the Greek you have two negatives. So it is, you shall never, ever fulfill the desires of the flesh if you're walking in the Spirit. The two are entirely distinct and separate. Just as you can't be in two places at once, you cannot walk in both the Spirit and in the flesh. This is how the flesh is crucified on a practical daily basis. We're talking a death by neglect. In Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, 
It says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, we'll see later here in Galatians, it talks about those who uh, are in him have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And there's another place in Colossians where it talks about mortifying the flesh, putting to death the flesh. But those aren't how-to areas. They're just stating what uh, is taking place. What, but this is how to, by the, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It's the power of the Spirit that has the capability of doing that, not uh, the flesh fighting the flesh, not our own personal efforts in, in bringing that about. If by the Spirit you put to death the, de- the deeds of the body, you will live. Merriman again says, Many Christians reverse this concept by saying or thinking, If we suppress the flesh, if we try not to do fleshly works, then we will be spiritual. This attitude leads in turn to legalistic strictures in an effort to hold down the flesh. These totally miss the point of Galatians 5.16, which guarantees those fleshly lusts will not reach their goal or end only when the believer conducts his or her life in the Spirit. There's no idea in this context of pitting one's will against the flesh. Such is futile. The only hope for man is the salvation deliverance provided in Christ and the life of the Spirit provided for human experience. The second provision the Lord has made for us is uh, for those instances when we may not walk in the uh, Spirit and we actually end up walking in the flesh. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you, chapter 1, so that you may not sin. He says, if, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's saying, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if it should happen, that you sin, then we have an advocate with the Father. This word advocate is the parakletos, which Jesus mentions in John 14 through 16 as another comforter that the Father will send to you in my name. Another one like me is what's being said there. And so this is applied not only to the Holy Spirit, but here it's applied to Jesus. He's the one called alongside to help, which is what that that Greek word means. And so uh, it's also given the idea of a defense attorney. He's there in the presence of the Father if we sin, and he's giving a defense. Now his defense is, oh, no, they didn't mess up. His defense is, yeah, they blew it. But, you know, I paid the price for that. I've covered that sin by my blood. You know, here's the evidence and our enemy is there accusing us, of course. And Revelation you know, tells us about the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing them before God night and day. He's busy. Jesus is busy there. So this is a provision that's made for us. What if we don't walk in the Spirit? What if we fail? What if we fall? First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take those sins to the Lord, we confess them, we repent because we turn away from them and turn back to uh, 
walking in the Spirit, serving the Lord. And he cleanses us by his blood from all unrighteousness. So he's made provision for us to walk in righteousness and holiness by walking in the way of the indwelling Spirit of God. And he's made provision for events of failure if they should occur. A true cleansing of sin and not a mere covering. We are cleansed to walk in the Spirit once again. In verse 18 of Galatians 5, he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The new means of pleasing God is being led by His Spirit who dwells within the believer. You are no longer in a law relationship with God. The law is no longer relevant in your relating to God. Just as God doesn't have to be careful about what He does and doesn't do. The law is obsolete as a means of seeking to please God for those who through grace by faith are born again and led by the Spirit. The primary leading of the Holy Spirit is through the Word that He has inspired. The Scriptures are the truth of God and the will of God. The Spirit empowers us to follow His leading as revealed in His Word. This is the primary means that the Spirit leads believers. He won't uh, lead in any way in contradiction to that which he's already written for us. Scriptures cannot be broken. Now, the Spirit may speak to you by his internal voice or leading, but he will never contradict what he's already covered or conveyed in writing. All such inner voices or speakings must be tested. And if we are not being led by the Spirit in keeping His Word, then we may want to seek the Lord and see why that is not the case. Well, in verse 19, Paul uh, begins to contrast the flesh with the Spirit because this is the means, you know, are we going to walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit? And it says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. They're plain. Everybody can see them which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have these works of the flesh. He gives us this list of 17 things. Adultery, you know, the breaking of the marriage vows, fornication, which is uh, outside of marriage, sexual immorality outside of marriage. Uh, this is the word pornea, from which we get our word, you know, pornography. Uncleanness, which covers anything that doesn't go to that extent. (laughs) And then lewdness, which is open uncleanness. And we find with that with uh, Paul exhorting us against filthy talk, things of those sort. Idolatry, we know what that is. Sorcery, this word is the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. And it implies, well, it indicates the use of drugs and Many times the witchcraft, as it's translated King James, the sorcery of those days would be uh, through the use of drugs. And that can, that's continued you know, throughout history. Hatred. And this would be a hatred that's uh, against 
God's hatred. God hates sin, right? So uh, Psalm 139.22, the psalmist says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. God's hatred is perfect. Our hatred may not be perfect. So, And certainly if it's in the flesh, it's not perfect. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, which is division, literally means standing apart from others. Heresies, which are spiritual lies. Envy, that's defined as grief at someone else's good. You don't necessarily even want what they have. Many times that's what envy indicates, but just the fact that they've been blessed. You know, you're upset. Murders, drunkenness, revelries, which is unrestrained debauchery. And then if that case has not enough, Paul says, and the like. So fill in the blanks. And we'll see a couple other lists, you know, that are he gives in other places, which many similarities, but a few differences. He points out those who practice such things, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Lauding Galatians on being heirs and inheritance and then throughout the New Testament. This is uh, what God hath prepared for us. Heirs of God, Christ and join or heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. So what all, all of what Jesus inherits, he's going to share with those who trust in him. Now, concerning this list, David Guzik points out that the Holy Spirit has never led anyone into any of these works. Sometimes people will seek to justify themselves, and, and they they implicate God <laughs> in doing one of these things here. The Holy Spirit has never led anyone into any of these works. These works are actually external expressions of unseen passions and desires of the flesh coming forth from the heart. Those who practice such things, the word practice, uh, Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, says it is durative in action. Thus it is speaking of the habitual practice of such things, which indicates the character of the individual. So this is a continual action kind of thing. This is their life, and it indicates their character. It's not a, a one-time event you know, where they might slip up and fall. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce again says the tense of this verb to practice, the present tense indicates a habitual continuation in fleshly sins rather than an isolated lapse. And the point is that those who continually practice such sins give evidence of having never received God's spirit. Henry Morris concerning this list said the list is typical, not exhaustive, as he adds the phrase and such like to cover the rest. These include and people will categorize these, you know, you'll find categories of three or four different things in this list. And this is Henry's. These include sexual sins, religious sins, moral sins, violent sins, and mental sins. Everything which violates the laws of God and man. We find in Jeremiah 17:9 where he tells us the heart of fallen man implied is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't even know our own hearts apart from the Lord and how really wicked and evil they are. We tend to get our, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Now we can see it in that other guy or girl, you know. 
Romans 7.18, Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So even though he might desire to do what God uh, commands him to do, there's nothing good in his flesh to be able to produce that. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. These are some of the other lists. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. I could be jailed in some places just for reading this this verse. People love to say, well, Jesus never addressed the issue of homosexuality. Um, But he inspired the word of God. And you'll find this condemned throughout scripture now this you know this is two different words uh, for homosexuals one is uh, the active and one is the passive and these these were words that were existing in the greek culture because you know um, many of these situations would take place in uh, temple prostitution and you had male and female prostitutes in these temples and so He says those who uh, do these things, homosexuals and sodomites included, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So we're separated from those things, whatever we might have been involved in in the past, in our flesh. And some of these, you know, you think are, are relatively minor covetousness compared with some of the other things in the list. But all of them, if practiced continually, uh, will eliminate a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. Uh, in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, no no gratitude, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, despisers of good. See that? verse in Isaiah, you know, about calling good evil and evil good. That's that's like world scale, you know, culture now. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He says they have a form of godliness. There's a religiosity about it, but they deny its power, power to deliver them from these things. From such people, he says, turn away. And then in Romans chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, we find Paul giving another list. It says uh, in verse 28, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. If you put God out of your mind, then at some point your mind is going to be given over to debasement. He says their mind is to do those things which are not fitting. They're filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, 
They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. A lot of people whisper. What's wrong with being a whisperer? You know, well, it's what they're whispering. <laughs> Backbiters after whispers. They're backbiters. They're haters of God. We have a lot of people. Most atheists are haters of God. I wouldn't say all because I don't know all atheists. But a lot of the reading that I've done, uh, most atheists are haters of God. This being they say doesn't exist. How do you hate somebody that doesn't exist? You know, and why would you spend? You know, if he doesn't exist, why would you spend all your time? railing against him and trying to get other people to not believe in him and so forth. So they're haters of God. Violent. They're proud. They're boasters. And look at this one. Inventors of evil things. Human beings are great inventors. And many things, you know, are many good inventions. But People who have departed from God are inventors of evil things. They come up with new evil stuff. The old evil stuff is not, yeah, not good enough. So, you know, and and it's new and it's flashy and, you know, it's something that will attract more people to get into it. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. He says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, it's back there in their knowledge. That those who practice such things are deserving of death, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. So much approval of evil that we see in our media today. So we come to verse 22. In contrast to the works of the flesh, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So this is a list of the uh, attributes of the Spirit that he would bring into a person's life. The fruit of the Spirit's love. This is a, a mental attitude of willingness to do what is best for others in view of eternity. That's a, a definition of agape. You know, just a succinct definition of mental attitude of willingness to do what is best for others in view of eternity. Joy, gladness that emanates from God. Peace, we have peace with God and the peace of God. Long-suffering, which is an even endurance despite provocations. Kindness, goodness, includes an idea of active benevolence and includes the idea of generosity Faithfulness, which is a stability or a dependability. Gentleness, a meekness, a lowly attitude. And self-control. You know, self-control comes by, from the Spirit. It doesn't come from self. It comes from the Spirit. Against such, there's no law. This uh, Against such, there's no law. Henry Morris says this is a masterly understatement. It draws our attention to the fact that the kind of conduct that Paul has outlined is what that which lawmakers everywhere want to bring about. 
I passed all these laws wanting to produce these things. There's no law against these things. He also says we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are new creations in Christ. So we do not need the threatened penalties of the law to constrain us to refrain from sin. The love of Christ constrains us, as 2 Corinthians 5.14 says. And a, con- <clears throat> and a conscious commitment to the leading of the indwelling spirit by God's word will enable us to live in a way pleasing to him who has saved us not to yield to fleshly lusts. So if you walk in the Spirit, you have no need to fear breaking God's law. These things are not unlawful. Instead, they're in full compliance. There's a song by uh, Mark Hurd that I thought of, which is it's called Nobody's Looking. <laughs> and he said, at one point he says, you can love if you want to. Go ahead. Nobody's looking but God. There's no law against it. When you walk in the Spirit, you bear God's character, His personality attributes. We don't bear uh, His attributes of deity. You know, we're not omnipresent, we're not omniscient, we're not omnipotent, although He might share those things occasionally with His people through the gifts of the Spirit. But with the fruit of the Spirit, His personality attributes, those things that make Him who He is, are to be displayed in His people. So when we walk in the Spirit, we bear His character. His personality attributes are coming forth from us. Uh, Morris again says, These attributes should characterize all who walk in the Spirit because He produces that fruit in their lives. In fact, this listing seems practically to define the nature of Christ. It does indeed. Christians, therefore, do not need the constraints of the law to make them possess these characteristics, for they are the fruit-born by the indwelling spirit. The flesh has works. That is the product of toil and effort. These are things that we do out of our own resources. The spirit bears fruit, which is the product of an inward life. These come from God's resources within. So by walking in the spirit, we're led by the spirit. We bear his fruit. This has been compared to a factory versus a garden. The factory of the flesh and the garden of God's spirit producing versus abiding in the vine. Merriman says, under law, one's expectation is of himself. That is his own capacity to produce, to deliver. One of Paul's purposes in Galatians is to show that human effort, efforts of the flesh, cannot accomplish the work of the spirit. Grace-oriented believers realize that only God can deliver from sin and produce righteousness. So bringing forth fruit is something God does in you, through you. Your part is simply to believe God, to trust God, to rest in God and allow him to accomplish in and through you that which he desires. This is the easy yoke, the light burden of Christ. These things, this fruit It's foreign to your natural man. These are things that are natural to the new man, but they are also new to the new man. You grow in the experience of bringing forth fruit to the Lord. Fruit goes to the heart of who a person is, not what they do. But what you do comes from who you are. So if you live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. The word fruit here is in the singular 
So it's a cluster of fruitfulness, you know, fruit cocktail. It doesn't have the heavy syrup. It's clean. It's pure. It's fruit. Uh, Morris says again, it may be significant that the word fruit is singular. Some people say, well, it's not significant, but um, you know, people will look at this list in Galatians 5:22 and 23, and they'll say, well, the fruit is love, and these other things describe the love. And certainly, those things are things that describe the love of God. Um, but whether it's, you know, it's kind of like a cluster of fruit. There's different kinds of fruit. So it may be significant that the word fruit is singular. Paul's not speaking of a series of fruits that would be shared around so that one believer has one and one another. You know, it's like the gifts of the Spirit. We each get different things. But with the fruit of the Spirit, we're all to have all the fruit. Rather, Morris says he's referring to a cluster such that all the qualities are to be manifested in each believer. So this fruit comes from walking or continuing in the Spirit. The fruit does not come by self-effort, instruction, or practice. Here, let me teach you how to be long-suffering and patient and gentle. We can be exhorted. We can, you know, explain what these things are. But no self-effort is going to produce it. It's going to have to be by the Spirit. And you can't, you know, practice won't make perfect. It's not you. It's abiding in Him comes from remaining in fellowship with God. John 4, uh, 15, 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's not your fruit. You're just the conduit and the fruit's hanging on you as a branch. And you can't produce the fruit. If you're disconnected from the vine, no fruit. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me or continues in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. John 15:8. he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. In verse 24 of Galatians 5, then, he says, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Morris says, three times in Galatians, we are reminded that the Christian believer should be following Christ in his crucifixion. Galatians 2.20, this verse, Galatians 5.24, and we'll see another one in Galatians 6.14. We should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to serve him so that we should not serve sin. Romans 12.1 and 6.6. Crucifixion is a very slow and painful death. Just so... The death of a Christian to sin does not come in a moment of special blessing, but is painful and slow. I'll say some of the speed depends on our response to God and our learning to walk in Him. It can be much quicker or it can be much slower, depending on our response. Uh, Henry says, nevertheless, it it is basic in any truly effective Christian life. That is the death to the flesh, walking in the Spirit. So the verb tense here, have crucified, indicates something that happened decisively in the past. I have been crucified with Christ, and I practically crucify the flesh anew each day by walking in the Spirit. When I walk in the Spirit, the flesh has no power. The flesh is unplugged. To walk in the flesh, you have to plug the flesh in again. It's like reanimating a corpse. Nothing good can come from that. 
Now see Frankenstein. This is the true walking dead when we resurrect the flesh. He stinketh. And uh, Romans 6.11, you know, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Verse 25 then, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And as, you know, the word if, when you find it in Scripture, uh, it can be either a question if or it can be uh, stated as since. Like when, because uh, that little word has both, can have both meanings. Uh, when the devil tempted Jesus and he said, if you're the Son of God, well, he could just easily be saying, since you are the Son of God. And here, um, most people think that this should be since we live in the Spirit, not if, but, okay, we're alive by the Spirit now. He's talking to believers here. Uh, since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And to walk is to walk in line with, to walk the line, to be in line with, or to keep in step with the spirit it's a it's a different word than walk in 516 this one indicates more of a progression in uh, and more of a uh, congregate group thing it's paraphrased in a couple of different places a couple of different translations it goes like this uh, the idea is the spirit has given you life now let him direct your steps or if the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit also direct its course. And when you can remember the source and the course, you know, because it rhymes. Paul said this same thing basically back in Galatians 3.3 3, where he said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? We continue in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We don't go back now that we're justified by faith and seek to please God in the flesh. This is said also in Colossians 2.6 where he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So it's not enough just to receive Jesus as the Lord. We must also follow in his steps as 1 Peter 2.21 exhorts us. Again, Merriman says the believers regenerated by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, etc., his every impulse toward God is the result of the Holy Spirit's operation. Hence, he learns to trust in and expect Holy Spirit production in his life. We've been given life by the Spirit of God. We must live our life in the Spirit of God. Do not go back to the flesh, keeping law and being dominated by sinful thought, speech, and behavior. Verse 26 then. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Spiritual pride, seeking glory for self, is always an issue, which is a work of the flesh. This is a provocation to others' flesh and provokes to envy and other fleshly attitudes and actions. And 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that God's love is not provoked. Uh, some, like King James Version, it will say not easily provoked. That's that was just that's not in there. It's not provoked, but it's hard to deal with that. So you know it's easier to have easy in there. God's love is not provoked. The flesh is very easily provoked, and so we don't want to be uh, acting in ways that might provoke others. 
to respond in the flesh. When we're filled with conceit and envy, there's no room for the filling of the Spirit within us. Uh, Dwight Moody said, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that's contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition in the world, there's no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. I'd like to conclude with a a passage from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, he says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is walking in the spirit, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. This is the end goal is that we might be shining as lights in the world by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we walk in the Spirit. So let's live and walk as who we are in Christ, filled with the Spirit and empowered for pleasing our God.